$5 to Donuts with your host, Steve Portugal. Welcome to Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. Over the past few years, I've been volunteering with Move On, a progressive organization. My contribution is to be part of their texting team, where they identify an issue or a cause, and a group of us volunteers send text messages about that topic to their membership. Last week, I was part of a campaign to raise awareness of best practices for protection against coronavirus. We don't send text messages from our phones, it's through a browser interface. So a texter sees a pre-addressed and pre-written message which they send one at a time, usually thousands in total. When people respond, the volunteer can classify that response, which will produce a relevant text message to send back to them that we might customize ourselves to ensure that it makes the most sense. So move on, collects responses and future campaigns, say for someone to call their representative about an issue or to get out the vote, are built based on what they learn from looking at their data. So in this recent experience, we were asking people if they were practicing social distancing and sharing a link with resources and information. The responses that they were expecting were essentially, yes, I am, no, I can't, or I don't think I need to, I need medical help, and thank you. The first day I participated, I heard from a number of people who were medical professionals. Now, even though we are working on a dashboard with pull-down menus, people are entering text on their phones, and they have no idea what our interface is, so they wouldn't necessarily share their responses according to our predetermined categories. And Move On runs a busy Slack channel where during any campaign you can get help in categorizing a response or dealing with any situation that may arise. So the next day when I was texting, I noticed two changes. The thank you response had been changed to you're welcome, which was a big improvement. So even though the yes and no responses were labels for me that matched what the person told us, if they said thank you as their response, your brain isn't looking for a thank you label in order to send the text you're welcome. You start looking for you're welcome because that's what you're trying to say. And then the other change was a new response category for I'm a medical professional. Whether they were looking at the responses in a table or whether they had one of the volunteers raise this exception or this unique category of responses that wasn't originally accounted for as an issue, I don't know. I was interested in their ability to pay attention to the data and update their tools so rapidly. And it reminded me of survey research, which is not something I would say I'm a particular expert in. And I know in surveys, it's a best practice to do a pilot study. And maybe that's where you catch something like this. But it just reaffirmed for me that creating categories for people's behavior and opinions is always a hypothesis. And deciding ahead of time how to categorize responses before you've got a big pile to sort through It's always going to be flawed. So Move On is able to make changes on the fly, even during a campaign, and I'm sure it messes up their data collection somewhat, but their priority is on the experience of the campaign, not their data. Survey researchers probably don't have that opportunity, but it's interesting to consider, well, what if they did? So here's another episode. As before, this was assembled quickly with the budget I have available for production, which is zero. There's no professional editor, there's no professional transcript. The audio quality is the best that we could get when people are working at home without access to all their gear, using an internet under strain, and so on. And just a reminder that you can support this podcast by supporting my business, by supporting Portugal Consulting. This is an uncertain time and many small businesses are feeling the pinch and don't know what's coming. 
So I will appreciate you keeping me in mind now and in the future as a collaborator in conducting research and as a resource for helping grow and develop your company's capabilities. All right, let's get to my interview with Catherine Campbell. She's the Director of Research and Insights at Ticketmaster. Catherine, thanks so much for being on Dollars to Donuts. I'm looking forward to the chance to speak with you. Hi, Steve. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to the conversation as well. I'm a big fan of your, your podcast. And now you're on the podcast. So Woo! That's, living that's, the dream. Yeah, living the dream. Well, we'll see. We're starting to live the dream. I would love for you to introduce yourself to begin. Okay, great. Uh, Catherine Campbell, I am the Director of Research and Insights for Ticketmaster, which is a uh, subsidiary of Live Nation, the world's largest uh, live entertainment company. So in a minute, maybe we can talk about the research that you're doing, but can you set the context a little bit about Ticketmaster itself? Absolutely. Uh, So most of your listeners are probably familiar with Ticketmaster and have had some interactions with us over the years. Uh, We're a 40-year-old company and a longtime innovator and leader in uh, the live event ticketing space. So most of us think about Ticketmaster from the perspective of the fans, and the fans are a critical uh, user group for us, uh, very near and dear to our hearts. And the people at Ticketmaster uh, mostly come there because we are fans ourselves. But we also have a number of other customer groups that we serve that includes uh, artists and their managers and promoters. It includes the venues and the services that work with the venues like parking and refreshments. And we also have direct relationships with most of the major sports leagues in the U.S. and in other countries. So football, basketball, hockey, all those kinds of things. So as you dig into it, you realize there's actually a very complex ecosystem of customers to serve. Within what you can describe, I wonder if there's any aspects of some of those types of research that maybe are things we wouldn't have heard about? Sure. Uh, One of the things that I really enjoy about my job is working. We have a subsidiary called TM Music that works directly with the, the artists and their teams. And it's trying to get more money, uh, into their pockets rather than into brokers or scalpers uh, pockets. So working with them on innovative solutions that allow them to ensure that people, let's say members of their fan clubs can pre-order tickets or receive priority in the waiting room or queue uh, versus other people that we have not identified and might have reason to believe could be resellers. So Uh, That's one area where we get to work. We also get to work with uh, venues. And of course, we tend to think of the big arenas. But there's also the relatively small theaters that do a lot of uh, touring productions and helping them be more efficient and um, have a better relationship with their subscribers as well as one-time buyers. Uh, And then with the leagues, it's helping them get to know their customers better. Uh, One of the things that takes you a while to realize about ticketing is that in the old world, you only actually knew who about a fifth to a fourth of the people in your stadium or arena were. Uh, Most of them, you know, one person might buy four tickets. So a football team might be selling out, but they don't really know who a lot of the people are that are in that stadium, uh, how far they're coming from, uh, what the composition of their group is. So there's lots of interesting dimensions to the research that we do with those different segments. 
Right. So a ticket buyer is not the same as a event goer. Exactly. Given the different types of customers, users, et cetera, that you're trying to learn about, does that impact how you organize your own group and how, in order to work with different, different parts of your organization and then different customers? Absolutely. And, you know, this is an ongoing debate, I think, in the research world is whether you have a, a centralized group, um, you know, internal agency, which is what our model is, or if you embed researchers in the lines of business so that they can work more closely with those stakeholders. What I feel is best for uh, both the company and for the team members is kind of a hybrid model. I, I really like the mutual support and training benefits and the opportunity to stretch and grow of having everyone on a centralized team. But some of these areas are very complex. And so our internal stakeholders would like to have some continuity over time and work with the same person and not have to re-educate them about the complexities of their product each time. So what I'm always trying to do is to maintain continuity to the greatest degree possible on the products and stakeholders, but also allow the individual researcher to feel like they are growing and stretching and developing new skills and being exposed to new kinds of projects. So that is a constant balancing act. So this may be a really annoying semantic question or not even a question, but I liked the phrase that you used when you talked about embedded, you talked about embedding in lines of business. And sometimes when people talk embedded, they talk about embedding on product teams and those may be the same thing, but in terms of what picture they paint in my head, I don't know, is a product team in a line of business. And when we think from the purposes of embedding, is that a distinction without a difference? Right. So, well, not necessarily. I mean, you're right. Within a line of business, there's going to be multiple product teams, and some of our products cross multiple lines of business. So, for example, the product that we use that supports season ticket holders is called Account Manager, and it is uh, basically a white label for the leagues or or the theater um, theaters to manage their subscription customers, right? So that's within one line of business, which is actually our enterprise, our B2B line of business. Uh, However, those people, the individual season subscribers, season ticket holders are still fans and they also want to buy maybe individual tickets, right? And they uh, want to be able to manage their tickets in a centralized way. And, And they can easily get confused if there's a different experience in account management than there is in their account on Ticketmaster.com. So you're right that it it gets muddy. It's not the same thing. But in terms of the underlying question of, of how do you balance that, one thing that we try to do is let's say, we have one person who is um, an expert, which we do. We actually have two people that are experts on account manager. Uh, however, whenever there is uh, availability of somebody that might normally work on our, what we call the marketplace side, the, the B2C side, uh, they might tag team on an account manager project. And that helps to inform them about that product, make them more aware of the complexities for a fan that has a membership in, you know, an account in both. Um, and they can also inform that account manager team about some of the things that we're doing on the uh, marketplace side, right? So 
It gives them a little bit more purview. It facilitates internal sharing of learnings because we are, as you're beginning to get a sense, we are a very large, complex organization and we're very fast moving. And so uh, that flexibility, I think, is both more satisfying to the researchers, but also benefits the product teams uh, in the long run. It's an interesting, it's a, it's a, I think a brilliant idea to do sort of knowledge transfer or knowledge distribution by moving people. The people contain information and you move the people around and the information, the knowledge, the expertise gets shared that way. As opposed to, you know, I feel like sometimes there's a, there's an idea we should extract the information that's in people and then centralize that. Right. But you're, you're distributing the people right. because the collaboration, you know, lets the, that expertise come to the surface and have impact in ways that you wouldn't necessarily be able to predict. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I remember listening to someone talking about how that was a strength at Google, the way that uh, people tended to move between different groups and the informal knowledge sharing and transfer there. Um, I think with large, complex organizations that whether we like it or not, that informal knowledge sharing is at least as important, if not more important than the more formal documentation, which is always going to be uh, less rich and behind the times, right? Um, and I also think, you know, at, at the risk of digressing, that this whole issue of really caring for your team and their career is one that I think is too often overlooked. Uh, you know, even on the agency side, it's always easier to satisfy your client, whether it's an internal or an external client, by having them keep seeing the same face. But who wants to be that person that only knows about one thing and keeps doing the same thing year after year? And, you know, whether or not you want to build out your portfolio because you want to eventually leave, or maybe you just want to stay interested and engaged and challenged. Um, I, I think it's really incumbent on us as leaders to facilitate that growth. And that is a lot easier to do if you deliberately encourage this kind of uh, movement across different project types and, and skill sets. What else do you do to take care of your team? Oh, gosh, we do a lot of things. In our weekly meeting, one technique that I developed a few years ago when I was working with a boutique agency, Primitive Spark, was to start the weekly team meeting by really sharing on a more personal level what's present for you. You know, are things going great and you want to share something? Um, do you have a sick kid at home and you're worried about them? Um, we really try to bring in a bit of that humanity to our professional understanding of each other because it helps you understand where people are coming from. Uh, we also really try to encourage thinking as a team in all respects. We actively try to load balance. So, you know, with research, you have the best laid plans, right? Have everything laid out and then a product gets delayed or it gets accelerated. And so you might find yourself either with three major projects that you need to do interviews on this week or nothing for three weeks. And so we're constantly um, encouraging the team members to chip in and help each other. And again, that facilitates that ability to uh, knowledge share and, and uh, maintain uh, both personal growth and professional uh, efficiency you know, over time. I mean, it seems like in some organizations, there's, you know, a lot of measurement of where you spend your time or where you don't spend your time that mm. may have the, it may work against 
what you're talking about, right? How are people incentivized or just incentivized to spend their time? So I'm wondering, I mean, I don't know sort of how it works at, at Ticketmaster. You can obviously say this is the goal, but is there are there measures in place to, I don't know, reward is the wrong word, but to yeah. support that kind of operationally? Yeah, it's, it's a really good point because we get back what we incentivize and what we measure, right? So I do not keep a tight track of hours per week or uh, we don't have billable hours because we're an internal agency, but that's not what the focus is on so much as a couple things. One is what kind of research we're doing. Um, I've heard you in, in prior podcasts uh, ask about focus on uh, generative versus evaluative research. And so uh, that is a focus for us. We want to continuously move upstream where uh, we can have more value in terms of, uh, quote, to build the right it before you worry about building it right. So we do have uh, quarterly um, OKRs, um, objectives and key results, um, around what percentage of your work is generative. To that end, we have embarked on a democratizing research program over the last year where we're training the uh, product designers in how to do their own UX research, prototype research, uh, which has a number of benefits for everybody. One is it's faster for the designer. They can do quicker, smaller studies if they don't have to wait for one of us to be available. Um they get closer to their end customer and get to understand them better. And it also means that we don't get into the situation that happens with many UX research departments where we're just constantly every week or two churning out new studies, but never moving upstream to the bigger product concepts, right? So this way we can kind of push off some of that more routine prototype testing work and we're now focused on doing concepting focus groups or surveys to size market interest in something or facilitating um, a design workshop or, or those kinds of things. So I wanted to ask then about uh, where projects come from. You've made space, kind of made bandwidth for your team by empowering others to take on a certain set of, of projects. And now you listed a bunch of things that you know you're free to go and do, but where do those projects originate? It's a great question. And I think that feeling empowered to take some ownership of that process is probably the inflection point uh, in terms of really adding value to an organization with research. So I am extremely fortunate because Ticketmaster's president, Amy Howe, uh, and our CMO, Kat Frederick, uh, when I joined two years ago, both of them explicitly said to me, I do not want you to be an order taker. I do not want research to just be order takers. And so that said to me, you are empowered to go out there. And so we do a couple things. One is as projects come in and we have a, a process by which things come into the queue and then they're reviewed and groomed weekly and that sort of thing. We talk about, okay, what here best aligns with a key corporate priority? And Ticketmaster is pretty good about sharing what the key business priorities are that people should be focused on. But then occasionally we also say, gosh, 
I wonder, I keep hearing about this new thing and it seems like a really important thing and it seems like something we should be doing research on and nobody's asked us to do research. So we feel very comfortable pursuing those stakeholders and saying, gosh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be a good idea to, to get some end user uh, validation that this is the right set of requirements before we build this or to help ensure, you know, that that we've captured all of the requirements here. We can do that. We also, I've built in a model of periodically checking in with the most senior leadership at the company to tell them what we have been working on and also what's coming up and to say, are the projects that we're planning on doing for the next quarter uh, aligned with where you think the real value for the organization is. And so that can also be a point of alignment. But yeah, increasingly, we find ourselves suggesting things that really should have research done on them. And sometimes, in fact, we just go ahead and do stuff. And uh, I think that as long as you're not just pursuing uh, kind of cool vanity projects, but you're using as your North Star what the organization says are truly the key business priorities, I, I don't see that that would ever turn out badly for you. So in the situation where you are, you've identified something that a group is working on and you approach those stakeholders and say, hey, we could do this research that would help you at this point. Right. The question I'm really after is, you know, this thing that a lot of researchers express stress about the, um, you know, no one listens to me. They don't take our recommendations. We can't impact the team. They go ahead and do what they're going to do anyway. Right. How does the taking action on the research part play out when you are not being an order taker, when you're being proactive and kind of coming to them? What do you see happening as a result of the research? Yeah. So we as researchers need to be willing to be flexible. Uh, I don't like to encourage stakeholders who constantly come in at the last minute when they could have allowed for more planning time. But sometimes things really do emerge at the last minute or become very urgent. So we need to be willing to say, hey, what can we do to try to make research work within the time constraints and the other needs that this project has? And I think that if you are willing to be an empathetic partner in that respect that earns you some trust in the relationship and they can see, hey, you're knocking yourself out to make this work, so I should go ahead and use it. And then the other thing is some stakeholders just get it more than others do. And one of the best pieces of advice I got from an analyst at Forrester Research when we were talking about how to build a culture that respects research was she said, hey, work with the people that really value you create fabulous case studies and then use them as advocates because that will have a lot more impact on the recalcitrant stakeholders than you constantly saying, hey, why don't you use research? Research is good, right? So, uh, you know, when I have to prioritize who to make room for, I definitely prioritize people that historically have acted on our recommendations. That's that's really good, and I just want to highlight the the first part of that um, and make sure I understood that you're saying that if you adapt and you know are flexible and are sort of demonstrably digging in to support someone, that sets them up to be more receptive to the results of the work that you're doing for them. That's been my experience. You know, let's face it. 90% of the time, the reason someone does not embrace research is, well, sometimes they say to themselves, well, I won't learn anything new. But the 
biggest fear is normally this is going to take too long. I'm already behind. I have to hit this deadline. That's what I'm going to be measured by. It's back to what we talked about earlier. People behave based on what they're measured on and product owners and certainly project managers tend to be measured on did you deliver on time, right? So if I go to that stakeholder and I say, look, I am really worried about the unknowns in this new product and rolling it out too quickly to a large audience without doing some more user testing with the the beta product, we're willing to take our whole team and work in the evening or over the weekend and pull this together because we feel so strongly that that would be a good thing to do. Well, that kind of puts the stakeholder in the position where if they say no, now they're going to be held accountable if big things show up, right? <laughs> you know? They're they're making a very conscious choice to say no. And the good news is, you know, I won't say how long I've been in research, but it's been quite quite some time. And in all of that time, there has literally never, ever, even one time been a research project where I didn't learn anything. There's always a surprise. And in our business, sometimes that little surprise can turn out to be something quite significant. So for us, you know, now in the last year, a big product innovation for us has been around secure mobile ticketing, uh, which means that your phone is your ticket, right? I don't know if you've had experience now with going to events and everything's on your phone. Um, Well, if you happen to have let's say, an Android device with a heavy cover on it, it turns out that that impedes the scanner working correctly in certain circumstances. So there may only be, if we do a quick beta test with 100 people, there might only be two or three people there. But when you scale that up to all of the people that are going to any event in the next year, all of a sudden you're talking about having a big impact on our call center, for example. So, uh, you know, highlighting, oh, good, I'm glad we caught that. (laughs) (laughs) And promulgating that story of how we went to bat and how we found those insights. Uh, You know, I I think it it builds um, a sense that it is in everyone's best interest to work with us. Now, the flip side is, I also constantly am am tracking down and hounding the senior product people to say, what's coming up this quarter? What's coming up this half of the year? Uh, Have your priorities shifted. Let us know as soon as possible, because I don't like living in a state of chaos. I don't like constantly having to shift all the priorities because of something being uh, coming up at the last minute, if in fact, we could have known about it in advance. So now when they see me in the hallway, they immediately go through their mental checklist of, uh oh, is there anything that I should tell Catherine and her team about? (laughs) Right. Because you want people saying, uh oh, when they see you coming down the hall. (laughs) Well, in a good way. (laughs) In a good way. The good kind of, uh oh, here comes Catherine. Exactly. You're, You're painting a picture for us. I mean, the, you mentioned that, you know, when you first started talking with the leadership and in, in, in Ticketmaster about taking on this role, they framed the position as something where you had agency, where you were kind of going to direct things, as you said, not being an order taker. Right. I would imagine you have to guess here, but what, what do you think created the conditions for them that they understood the power of research and someone like you in order to work that way? How did they see that light? 
My hypothesis about that is both of those women are very smart, very data-driven executives. So they were not particularly knowledgeable about research. Uh, We do have Ticketmaster has an extremely robust uh, analytics group. Uh, So we invest a lot in site analytics and marketing analytics and uh, have very in-depth reporting and good turnaround times for learnings. So I think that they just wanted to extend that from the behavioral, you know, what are people doing uh, data that we were very rich in into the why are people doing that side that we were not rich in. So I think that having a data-driven organization that only had half of the insights that they needed is probably what created that uh, willingness to, uh, or that embrace of the research group. And how does the work that your team does, uh, how does that sit with the, either the people or the work of, uh, of analytics? Oh, that's a great question because it's kind of an unusual setup. And yet I do think it's the direction that the industry should move over time. So both my group, which is Research and Insights, Primary Research, uh, we sit next to and equal to um, the site and marketing analytics group so that together we form a combined insight center of excellence that reports up through marketing. And Forrester uh, has been promoting this idea of an Insight Center of Excellence for some time of bringing together all of those different sources of uh, information about your customers, the site data, marketing data, UX research, uh, survey research, qualitative research into one place. And when I hear the stories, the war stories from my colleagues at other companies, it really helps me appreciate how wonderful this construct is. Because just the other day, I was talking with a friend who's in charge of user research for a global company. And he said, you know, anytime our work starts to uh, move in the direction of maybe doing a survey, all of a sudden the marketing research team wants to get involved. But they're a completely separate group reporting to different people. They're not as knowledgeable about the background on the study. You know, it becomes a big deal to engage them. And yet they don't want us to do anything that looks like a survey if they're not engaged. So you create these um, territorial issues and obstacles to free flowing information. And you've been in research for a long time. You know how it is. It's kind of like unwinding a sweater where you start out in one place and then you learn something interesting. And so you start to follow that down. And so things keep evolving. You know, the appropriate methodology uh, keeps evolving. So having everything centralized, the only thing that's not centralized that I think is a key part of the insight into our customers is uh, fan support and client support. And we work very closely with those groups. Uh, We exchange uh, reporting and we also uh, check in with each other when an issue seems to be arising to see, you know, what each other is hearing. Um, But pulling all of that together, I think, makes the company just much more insightful and more nimble to act on insights. Maybe we can shift a a little bit. It'd be interesting to hear about the makeup of your team, what kinds of backgrounds do people have Mm -hmm. uh, coming in? Yeah. So uh, you can imagine, given the wide scope of research that we do, it's um, it's a mosaic of people with different backgrounds and different skills. There's a certain core skill set that everyone has to have in terms of 
you know, basic uh, one-on-one interviews, usability testing, and straightforward uh, survey research design. But beyond that, we definitely have uh, areas of expertise. We have one person who really loves and embraces research ops, and that is a godsend to all the rest of us because it just makes everything much more organized and uh, all the rest of us more efficient. Uh, we have a couple people, including uh, my number two person, who come from design backgrounds. And so they are especially good at thinking through how to make the information design as impactful as possible. So we've really been up-leveling the quality of our reporting to make things more aesthetically pleasing and also to help focus the reader on the couple of key numbers or quotes or whatever that they should really come away remembering. We have, uh, we just brought on someone who is expert in advanced analytics. So like I said, what I'm looking for is everybody has a basic, uh, a couple of the same tools in their tool belt. And then across the team as a whole, we're able to offer uh, richness of skills in a wide variety of areas. And when you talk to prospective hires, what are the kinds of things maybe beyond, you know, the the skills necessarily, but how do you think about trying to assess if somebody uh, would be a good addition to your team? I think that really the personality characteristics are more important in in most cases than the hard skills, although sometimes you need a particular hard skill. Uh, It's really important that people be smart and think quickly on their feet. You know um, how intensely you have to focus to shift when an interview shifts or to look at data and think about what it's really telling you and whether or not there's alternative explanations for that. So that that kind of um, skill set, uh, uh, mental nimbleness is very important. It's very important to me uh, in particular that they show initiative. Uh, I don't want to be a micromanager, um, especially, uh, you know, when you're working remotely. And right now, a lot of us are working remotely. You need to trust that people are going to pick up things and run with it. Um, I think that the basic people skills, likability, and very strong verbal and written communication skills are pretty key. Once again, we're, um, we're servicing senior stakeholders across a wide variety of businesses. And sometimes our insights might mean multi-million dollar shifts in investment. So a person has to be credible and take uh, feedback seriously. You know, one of the things that we practice a lot is helping our clients recognize the actions that are implied in an insight, but not overstating what the research itself told us, right? So it would indicate that this is a good new hypothesis for us to test and explore, maybe through research, maybe through A-B testing, you know, uh, but without saying, oh, yeah, this is what fans want us to do if that was not exactly what the research said. So that kind of discernment uh, is, is pretty important to maintain credibility as a researcher. Among the researchers, kind of relationship do you all have to, I guess, live entertainment, right? The business that the Ticketmaster is in. What's the culture among your team relative to that? It's pretty fun. I have to tell you, (laughs) it really is. Um, You know, uh, the 
hand, employee handbook says, you know, in terms of dress code, it says, you know, come to work as your authentic self. And uh, so, you know, people come to work and they're in band T-shirts or they're wearing a jersey for their favorite sports team. Uh, we have uh, dogs, you know, dog friendly policy. So a lot of people bring dogs to work when there is a major sporting event, you know, the World Cup or something like that. We throw it up on the TVs in the office. Um, so we are all fans and uh, we really do uh, empathize with and want to maximize uh, the joy in the live event experience. Um, and the flip side is we work. It, it's a very, very, very high velocity environment. Ticketmaster is actually one of the largest e-commerce companies in the world. And as we sometimes say, you know, every Tuesday is like uh, Black Friday because, you know, when you have one big global uh, music uh, musician after another coming out with their tours and you have 20 million people trying to get 400,000 seats all at the same time, uh, you know, there's a lot of stress on systems. So, uh, yeah, it's an intense environment, but it's also a fun environment. Do people do, do people still line up to buy tickets? That's a, maybe a showing my age or a naive question. But... Uh, they do, but they line up virtually. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> they line up in a virtual waiting room. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And it's, it's intense out there. You know, they're stressed out. And we have a lot of compassion and empathy for that. You know, somebody is so frustrated because their, you know, biggest star is announced to tour and they really want to see them. Um, and the reality is that even if the systems work perfectly and very frequently, the systems don't work perfectly. Um, there's just, you know, demand outstrips supply. Uh, so in, in certain circumstances, you know, when BTS goes on tour, when Taylor Swift goes on tour, uh, not everybody is going to get tickets, uh, at least not immediately, you know, maybe eventually, but it's not easy. Um, so again, working through uh, fairly sophisticated tools to try to uh, root out bots, we actually get, we turn away more than 1 billion with a B bots a month. You know, resellers and bad actors are constantly hitting our systems, trying to scoop up all the tickets um, so that they can resell them at a much higher margin. And uh, we are spending all of our time uh, trying to outwit them and trying to deliver real fans tickets to the events that they'd like to see uh, within their pocketbook, if at all possible. So demand for successful artist demand is always going to outstrip supply, but you're trying to make sure that as much supply as, as possible is available for the for the fans. That's the goal. Yeah. Can we shift gears a little bit? Um, while I, I ask sure. the question, I, I'd like to, I'm going to shift gears. You're the host. You get to do that. All right. I would love to hear a bit more about. You know, we've talked about you know your your work most recently, but. Can you talk a little about your background, how you found research and how you found, you know, the kind of research that you're doing now? Sure. Um, It's an unusual background uh, for UX research, but I think it is the perfect background for 
what I'm doing now and the direction that I think uh, research is moving. Um, I actually started out working for advertising agencies, doing marketing research, doing segmentation studies, message testing, uh, focus groups, um, you know, various uh, brand measurements, and uh, became a brand strategist. I was actually um, a partner for Ogilvy & Mather ad agency. Uh, over brand strategy. And what I realized as um, the internet changed from being viewed as just a media channel to being really the whole business for some companies, um, I realized that the biggest problem with some of the brands I was working on was their poor user experience. And so I wanted to learn more about the elements of good user experience and what made a site intuitive uh, as part of understanding how to align that experience with their brand promise. And over time, I just got more and more interested in user experience. And so that became uh, both through self-education and reading and taking classes. I never got a degree in HCI. Um, but I migrated into uh, UX research and um, because I had the prior background, I could also recognize when some questions came up and I would say, hey, this is not this is not the kind of thing that um, Jacob Nielsen meant when he said you only needed five users. This is actually a survey research question that you're thinking about here. And this is how we should go about that. Or this is a conjoint uh pricing question. So developed an unusually broad uh, research skill set, which is, as I said, perfect for what I'm doing today. I've given a lot of thought to why, what the obstacles are to having more integrated research departments like the one that we're uh, building at Ticketmaster. And I think the problem is people come up through different silos. I mean, the research mindset, broadly speaking, is appropriate across all these different techniques. It, it shouldn't stop when, you know, at the edge of one tool and now you need a completely different kind of training. Research is research at a fundamental level, but I think the fact that some people start like I did in marketing research in the marketing department and some people start in UX research, either in IT or design or the product group, and they just don't have much exposure to the other side. I think that that uh, legacy of corporate organization is really what is holding us back more than anything intrinsic that says that we couldn't work more closely together. Hence the insight center of excellence. That, that exactly. Yeah. But then I, I think about, you know, your, your earlier point about people moving themselves between different groups uh, is learning for them, but also they are pollinating or cross pollinating. And, and so you're someone that's moved from the advertising world and the marketing research world to the, as you said, the user experience world. Right now, they are separate worlds. Right. Yeah, I guess my question is just one that reiterates what you said, which was that it was it was, a, it was good for you to be able to do that and set you up. I think it's good for all of us, really. You know, I think the fact that we tend to transition careers uh, is not just a fact of life. I think that it actually strengthens us. Um, you know, so Dustin uh, Ganey at Ticketmaster, he's um, senior research manager, and he actually had started a pod of user researchers in the enterprise 
design group at Ticketmaster before I arrived. Dustin was a designer. And he took uh, Hillary Beanstalk's class uh, over at, uh, I think it's Cal State Fullerton, um, and got so interested in user research that that became his passion. And he transitioned into becoming a UX researcher and talked the design leader into letting him hire more people in that area. So now he's part of this larger group, but he's one of the people I was referring to that really helps elevate all of us. A lot of researchers are good at identifying insights, but we're not fabulous at the way that we communicate those insights, certainly visually. (laughs) I'm one of those people. Uh, And so Dustin has been developing templates and guidelines so that our work isn't ugly and tedious to make it through. People are proud to share our decks and the the key information jumps off the page at them. Um, And, you know, we wouldn't have that capability if Dustin hadn't migrated his career in that way. Well, he sounds like you to a certain extent, sort of discovering something that's adjacent, getting very excited about it, investing in development themselves, and then bringing not just the skills that they've learned, but that larger perspective, that larger set of skills and mindsets to help. Because research is a multifaceted thing. I think we keep talking about that. And and so the, the diversity of skills is only enhanced by people kind of coming in from elsewhere and bringing their previous kind of wardrobe or, or kits with them. I agree 100%. You know, I think that people that go into research are almost by definition intellectually curious. And, uh, you know, so we all benefit from the other things that are interesting to them, right? I mean, one of the things that I've reflected on, you know, just given that I've been in this profession for a long time, and I was in this profession when no one really knew what it was, and including me, that now you can't, now there are undergraduate programs or graduate programs, there's, it, it's a thing with a name that people can find, and they kind of come into it with a definition of what they, what it is and what they're going to bring to it. Of course, that doesn't mean so the sort of the shape of the field has evolved because people are choosing it earlier as opposed to finding it later. Um, yes, I mean, I agree with that. And I, I am right there with you. I share that that surprise at how, oh, wow, this is now a real thing. And, and none of us that started out, you know, came to it with that kind of background, or at least very few. And yet, you know, if you go to research meetups, like I actually am the organizer for um, LAUX research uh, meetup here in Los Angeles, there are still quite a few people that want to enter the field from adjacent fields, right? People that were designers, people that were content strategists, uh, people that did maybe academic research, Um, And so even with that uh, clearer path and training opportunity, I don't think it will ever necessarily end that there will be people trying to uh, figure out how to leverage the life experience that they've had that does still bring a lot of value, uh, but transition into a new skill set. I mean, I feel like life experience is... And I don't mean the amount of life experience you have. I just mean the, you know, back to your, uh, you know, your meetings where people talk about what's going on with, with them, a culture you work in where people can bring their authentic selves. That to me seems so supportive of research because it's a, I mean, depending on your method, but there's a large amount of human to human 
that's in it. And it is that makes it messy, but also very real. And if you don't have space to be yourself at work, if you're not creating an opportunity to kind of connect, you know, backstage and front stage or whatever your metaphor is, then it makes it hard to, I think, to do research as well as it possibly can, as you possibly can. So, and as you said, your life experience, whether that's, you know, anything, I mean, anything, any life experience that you have had, uh, as well as sort of discipline and education, professional experience, to me, feeds, kind of feeds the whole beast. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You know, we also have another uh, senior research uh, manager on my team, Brent Lowe. He came from a theater background. And, you know, so he brings an energy and exuberance to uh, facilitating brainstorming sessions and meetings and helps to coach some of the people that are perhaps a little bit more introverted by nature in how to uh, maintain that high level of energy that, you know, facilitates people uh, contributing lots of ideas, right? Um, so it, leveraging whatever background and passion you have and being able able to find a way to nurture and express that in your profession. To me, that's, that's a win-win for everybody, right? And within your team, people, are, you know, and you said this before, you, we were talking more about methods or projects, I guess, but that also is an opportunity f- for each other to learn. I mean, work with a theater person on the same project, you're going to just, you're, you can't help but be exposed to and inspired by different approaches to anything. I agree. So you mentioned that uh, you you had when you were working in advertising, you spent time in the agency world. How do you contrast you know, life inside a corporation versus life inside an agency? Yeah, uh, that's a good one. Um, it was a big transition for me. I spent a lot of my career in agencies, either large or small. And, you know, the fun thing about agency life is uh, usually everybody's very smart, very creative. Uh, you're constantly learning something new because you have to learn about the industry for each of your different clients. And, and that's all fun. And I was, I was nervous, to be completely honest with you, when I went to work for a huge corporation like uh, Ticketmaster Live Nation. And the good news is that uh, Ticketmaster is, as I was explaining earlier, so complex. I, I don't think I'm going to get bored there anytime soon. You know, there's, there's still lots and lots and lots to learn. Um, and it is kind of fun to rather than just tell somebody what they should do and give them the idea and hand it off to them, um, it can be it can be frustrating and it can be time consuming and it can take a lot of perseverance to see that through. But there's also a real joy in being part of something that comes out the other end and you say, wow, you know, I played a part in us building that product in the first place, or I made a major contribution to uh, how user-friendly it is. And so that creative aspect of it is a little bit different. It's not as much time on the blue sky brainstorming and a little bit more on the, okay, so how do we still pursue this given these uh, technical integration considerations or these other challenges that in the real world you have to work through, right? But, but it's been very fulfilling. It's been a great experience so far. Is there anything that we should try to cover in this conversation that we haven't got to? 
Those were uh, a lot. Gosh, you hit on a lot of great questions. It's been a, a real uh, joy chatting with you. I'm just kind of curious. You talk with so many people. Um, are there any trends that you find emerging or find very interesting in uh, user research right now? I mean, part of the fun of doing this podcast is talking with people who are, I mean, it's the the design intent of the podcast, people who are in leadership roles. So where the organization has invested to a certain point, because I think if you sort of hang around with researchers as as I do, you hear a lot of the same concerns. And so it's interesting mm-hmm. to talk with you and hear how either you've built around them or the conditions were created differently. So you know, you're describing a situation where the research team is proactive, but that's by design. So you were given that opportunity, and I don't mean to diminish your accomplishment that way, but the culture, the culture, the leadership kind of started off there. And I think a lot of people want to get to that stage. It just it makes me think about, you know, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of frequently asked questions, I think that, and we, talked about them, maybe using some different language, but, you know, having influence, getting time, you know, having buy-in, is a, there's a lot of angst about that. I, I hear that from people in so many different environments that I go into. And I feel like more and more I'm realizing, and maybe everybody else already knows this, but I'm realizing it's like, it's hard to manage up on those things. It's hard to, you know, create a culture that isn't there. It's hard to sort of change leadership's mind. There's, a lot of these are big picture things. How do we get everyone working on the same thing? Or how do we not duplicate research? Well, we have to devote resources to managing that. And I feel like because there's a lot of scrappy research practices out there, sort of under-resourced, without leadership, or without guidance, you know, not completely bought into, there's a lot of hope for, you know, magic fixes to systemic problems. So, you know, when I hear how people have worked hard to either find or build, you know, cultures, uh, investment, support that doesn't have those problems, I don't mean to say that everything is perfect for you or anybody that that I talk to, but it sort of drives home that you kind of can't, there, there should be some folksy saying about how you, you can't get the thing that you need without really going, without really having what it takes to pull that off. So if you're a solo researcher and you work kind of taking, uh, you know, taking orders, you know, for some designers and you're by yourself, you can't really change the corporate culture and buy-in around research and the belief because that often needs to be there beforehand. So it's a, it's a heavy lift for those folks and I know they want it. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you what I learned from you, I guess, and how it fits in. Right. Well, no, I, I, I really agree with what you're saying. You know, there's that old, uh, saw, uh, pick your parents carefully or pick your parents. Well, um, you know, the, the secret to so many things in life is, is good genes, right? <laughs> um, so I think that what you're highlighting for folks that are looking for work is, you know, especially earlier in your career, it's easy to get caught up in the title and the salary and that kind of thing. But there's, there's some of these bigger issues that you're touching on, Steve, that are really so much more important. You know, what, what is the attitude toward research? Uh, are people looking forward to you and, and what you're providing, or are they crossing their arms and being defensive about it? Um, do they view research as being an essential ingredient in success? 
you know, I sometimes say to people, I know that you're just focused on getting out the door as quickly as possible, you know, moving fast and breaking things. But I genuinely believe that I am the fastest path to you launching a successfully adopted product in the marketplace. And by I, I mean the research team, right? So, you know, looking at those things, asking some questions, kind of testing that out. If you are earlier in your career and you can find a company that will really value and encourage you uh, in that career, then that's going to be a lot better for you in the long run and a lot more satisfying personally than making an extra $5,000 or having a senior in front of your title or, or that kind of thing. I mean, that's my perspective. What, what do you think? I mean, I would say yes. And some people may like the challenge. <laughs> there you go. Some people may be interested in, in, in um, but uh, you know, I guess go into these things with your eyes open. So if this, if this is not a yeah. place. I, uh, no, no. Uh, I was just going to say, I do think this is one of the drivers behind the trend in the last couple of years of teaching UX designers and UX researchers uh, to better understand the language of business. Um, I imagine you are familiar with, you know, all these workshops and things that are starting to uh, crop up. And there is some truth to that, that if a person in product leadership is focused on, you know, we were talking about before, what are you measured on? Okay, well, you're measured on, you know, did you hit stay within the budget for this uh, product? Did it launch on time? What was the initial adoption? And the initial adoption is going to be the last thing to be measured. You find that out after the fact, right? So if we only ever talk about user experience as, well, we want our fans to have a positive user experience, that makes it seem like a nice to have, right? Yes, if time allows, of course, we'd like to do that. So I do think that if you're in one of those less hospitable, less enlightened environments, that learning how to frame your work in a way that makes it clear that it is directly part of that team's success and that you are all about, I use terms like mitigating risk, uh, enhancing adoption, uh, reducing wasted dev effort, right? Um, those are the ways that I talk about research because it makes it really clear. And, and, you know, one thing I left out of my background is along the way I got an MBA in business, you know? Um, so it makes it a little bit easier for me to think about the way to talk about what I do in the benefit oriented terms that my stakeholders will understand. I feel like uh, what pulled research along for, for many years when we started having phrases like UX, which we didn't always have, was was design, was user experience, and that that was kind of the foot in the door for a lot of technology companies. Yeah. And that it those people and that work highlighted the need for research. And so we've kind of been pulled along. And, you know, I think you're highlighting uh, another, what feels like a transition to me, that research is part of the organization, whatever part of the organization, all of the parts of the organization, or can impact all of those. Right. Uh, and that's the reframe you're talking about from, hey, research, can we can help create a good user experience to we can help change the how the business model, we can help right, uh, reduce uh, inefficiencies in, in engineering. That's research sort of stepping out of the shadow of its big brother and saying like, hey, we're a, we're a function that, that does all this stuff. I feel like that is part of the future that you're uh, looking towards and kind of helping to move the field towards. Yeah, agreed. Good way to put it. 
All right. Well, if, if we're almost at wrap up, I want to tell you about my experience working at Ticketmaster. Okay. Because I worked as an undergraduate computer science student. I, I worked at a subs, it was a subsidiary. It was a company in, uh, in Toronto called Bass, which was best available seating service. Uh, that then uh-huh. got bought by, got, got bought by Ticketmaster long, long time ago. So it was Bass Ticketmaster for a while, then just became like part of Ticketmaster.ca. But I was a, a night run operator. So there was no, there was no internet. Right. So it was, it was lining up, uh, at the record stores that had terminals. Right. And right. It was, uh, and it was the phones. Yeah. Uh, so I was in this little office that had like the phone banks. And, you know, if you think of like a seventies movie with like a computer room with the raised floor and the, the glass walls, <laughs> you had to like, you had to like badge in into it. Uh-huh. I worked, well, I worked in like an office outside there. And so at the end of the night, like I would go in and it was like a, I don't know, like a 6 p.m. to like 1 a.m. shift. And you basically had to wait for all of the nodes in the network to close. Like, so whenever the club sold its last ticket uh-huh. or the planetarium ran its last show, all those things would go offline. And then there were all these manual, I mean, you had to run scripts that would then print out, I think, every record for the day. Oh, so wow. you just print out these huge, so that was their audit trail, I guess. I mean, I didn't have any mental model at the time, but. You just go print out all these things, like a uh, hundred and thirty-two character tractor, whatever the metric was. These super wide, super fast printers that were in this room, and you have to, you know, t- tape all these reports and take the tractor feeds off them and, and staple them and put them in everybody's mailbox, and then do a disk backup, which was these dishwasher-sized appliances. You'd open the top, and there was a hard drive in there, which looked like a like a giant kind of cake container. You'd unscrew them. And then, like, <laughs> physically moved, you know, disc A to, to, there was two, there was a, some kind of backup thing. You'd move one to the other and take one off the shelf and like run this like 25 minute job to kind of back everything up. And it was, I mean, I don't know if it was archaic at the time, but uh, it's obviously just like a weird history thing there. But, uh, and of course, even, even the tech people were so into music, so into bands, just exactly like, what you're describing there. They had that same culture and it was fun to be part of that. Uh, it wasn't fun to be moving disc packs around at like 1am, but. Uh, and the anyway, room was probably pretty day. cold, right? <laughs> yes. Temperature control. Oh, yeah. that is great. That is a great story. Well, you'll have to, uh, I, I'd be happy to get you a Ticketmaster t-shirt. It sounds like you're an OG. An old, old, old G. Yeah, this was a very long time ago. Just, just from the tap. Yeah. Well, this was really fun. Thank you for uh, taking the time and uh, you know sharing your perspective on all the things that you've accomplished and kind of your your vision for the field. I really enjoyed this. Thanks, thanks so much. Yes. Thanks for listening. Tell your colleagues about Dollars to Donuts and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Dollars to Donuts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Play and all the places where pods are catched. Visit Portugal.com slash podcast to get all the episodes with show notes and transcripts. And we're on Twitter at Dollars to Donuts. That's D-O-L-L-R-S-T-O-D-O-N-U-T-S. Our theme music is by Bruce Todd.